Hello, everybody. This is Peter Goldstein, founder of We Did It and Chief Synergy Officer. I am so excited that you're here and that we're live today with a really special guest, Dr. Stylish Rao, uh, leader, founder of Climate Healers and Food Healers now. And he is absolutely a game changer and moving the needle and changing this world. So with that, let me introduce a, a little bit about our work. We did it. We are all about empowering the vegan and plant-based enthusiasts to be great ambassadors because we will change, move the needle, change the world, I believe, when we can all find great ways to communicate with our friends, with our loved ones, and, and our acquaintances, and be able to plant the seeds and be able to introduce them to, to the new ways to, to live, to eat, to grow, to, to be compassionate for animals, to have the optimism for changing the climate and world hunger. Uh, so thank you so very much for joining us. And with that, I'll bring Dr. Rao on. He's the founder of Climate Healers, a nonprofit, and, and he's He's been executive producer for a couple incredible movies and uh, documentaries, uh, Cowspiracy being one of them that's so famous that so many of us have, have seen. So with that, I'd like to bring Dr. Rao on, um, and here he is. Hello, Dr. Rao, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. So will you please share some of the highlights of your amazing career there and, and all the wonderful things that you're doing to change the world? <laughs> well, uh, I, I wouldn't say that. And I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a system engineer <laughs> trying to do my job, so to speak. Right. So, um, and I can tell you, you know, how it all happened. And I, I, I was working on the internet back in the nineties. And, um, and I remember going to these internet standards meetings and saying, hey, we can do a gigabit on this cable. And they all said, you're crazy. <laughs> it cannot be done. And, and then when we finally got it done, they were all like surprised. Oh, my God, it can be done. It is working. And uh, there it was just you know, applying simple engineering principles okay, to what is possible. And, and bringing things from other areas into this area. So it's one of those things that systems engineers are trained to do, right? So we kind of, uh, Donald Knuth said that uh, uh, systems engineer is someone who knows something about everything and everything about something. Okay, <laughs> that's what I was. Uh, jack of all trades and expert in one thing, which was how do you get, uh, high-speed signal processing working. Okay, that's what I was doing. And, and then uh, I was doing the same thing 10 times faster. You know, once you get something done, you say, oh, well, let me make it even faster, right? And, and I was getting really frustrated with it because uh, the internet was no longer a collegial body. Uh, the Internet Standards Committee was no longer as collegial as it used to be. Now there was a lot of money involved in the mid in 2005 and uh, people were arguing about silly things and, and and i was seeing it become political and i was frustrated okay that was the setting 
uh, when I came home one day and I saw Al Gore's presentation on TV, and I was so shocked. I told my wife, if half of what he's saying is true, I feel like I'm wasting my time working on making the internet 10 times faster. Who the heck cares anymore? You know, it's already working fine, right? <laughs> and she said, if you think it's that important, why don't you look into it? And that's what I did. You know, I spent the next uh, few months looking into it, and I realized it's actually far worse than what Al Gore was saying, because he was focusing just on the energy aspect of the problem, but it's an entire lifestyle change that needs to happen, right? So, um, so I was, you know, I told her it's far worse. So we, I have to close my company and focus on this full time. I don't want to do anything about the internet anymore. So we, she agreed. And so that's what we did. We closed our company and I wrote to Mr. Gore and I said, how can I help you? And that was the beginning, you know? And uh, uh, Al Gore was kind enough to say, come and get trained by me. You know, so I went and got trained by him. And during the training, I asked him about animal agriculture. Because even then, there was talk about animal agriculture and uh, uh, in the co context of climate change. And as an engineer, I like to put everything on the table and see how do you solve this problem. I don't say, well, I, I'll ignore this, I'll ignore that, and I'll only focus on this. No, I don't do that. You know. <laughs> So, so I brought that to uh, the training itself. And I asked uh, Mr. Gore, hey, if we just return the forest on the land that we're using to raise animals for agriculture, can we not reverse climate change? And he just looked at Roy Neal, his chief of staff, who was standing there on the stage next to him. And he said, how did this guy get in here? <laughs> <laughs> He's asking all these unnecessary questions, right? <laughs> uh, that's when I realized they don't want to talk about certain things. That there is something beyond just um, solar energy that's going on here. That it, this is that, that there is something fundamental that we need to address. Okay. And the more I looked into it, you know, by two thousand nine, it was quite obvious that animal agriculture was a big part of this climate change. And uh, because there was a paper by Goodland and Anhang who corrected the mistakes in the UNFAO's uh, paper, they corrected the mistakes and said it's actually 51% of greenhouse gas emissions that come from animal agriculture. And of course, the industry started you know, complaining about it. Oh, they're not doing it right, you know, this and that. And then they had a debate about it in, a, uh, in the Animal Feed Science and Technology Journal. And Goodland and Anhung basically won the debate. Okay, they won the debate. the um, The UN scientists who had argued it was only fourteen, I mean, eighteen percent at that point, they basically refused to. They declined to continue the debate, right? And then they went and wrote another report in which they actually reduced the number from eighteen percent to fourteen and a half percent. They went the other way. <laughs> And I was like, what? Who's taking these people seriously, <laughs> right? And yet that's the number that everyone is quoting. Right? So anyway, this was all going on. You know, and I was trying to convince uh, Mr. Gore to actually address this seriously. Okay, And I was doing it within the Climate Reality Project. Uh, by 2010, there was a report by the UN Environmental Program um, basically saying that Humanity needs to transform to a vegan diet. 
okay, in order to address the worst effects of climate change and global hunger and health issues. Okay, so they had, they said that. And that report came out in 2010. And I said, so that's a scientific report from the UN as well. So why aren't we taking that seriously? Why aren't we talking about that? Yeah, so that was uh, what I was trying to get Al Gore to, to do. And then I finally broke off from him and started doing it myself, you know, at Climate Healers. So I started Climate Healers in 2007. The um, basic idea, uh, the motivation behind Climate Healers was to heal the Earth's climate. How do you heal the Earth's climate? Because I felt that the discourse in the mainstream um, environmental community of uh, just making sure that the, that the Earth's fever does not go over two degrees Celsius, or it does not go over one and a half degrees Celsius. I felt that that was, I mean, entirely inappropriate way of looking at the problem. It's like, you know, if you have a fever and you go to a doctor and the doctor says, oh, you have a one degree Celsius fever, okay? And you also have a lump the size of a coconut by the side of your head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and then the doctor says, oh, I'll make sure your fever doesn't go over two degrees Celsius while a second lump develops on the other side of your head. <laughs> and he said, this doctor is crazy. I don't want to talk to him anymore, right? So that's, but that's how we are dealing with the earth. Okay, that's how the mainstream uh, environmental <clears throat> community is dealing with the earth. And I felt it was absolutely inappropriate. This is not how you do solve problems. So, and I was one, you know, I was shocked that anyone was taking them seriously. Okay. So that was the motivation behind climate healers. And then, you know, um, by 2009, 2010, I was one of the most depressed environmentalists on the planet. Because I thought there was nothing I could do, and we are all going to hell in a handbasket, right? So um, I had visited this um, sanctuary in the Western Ghats of India, um, where I had this deja vu, sense of deja vu, this sense, of, and actually it's a sense of perfection I had, because I was born in that forest in a about you know fifty years before. And I remember the forest to be full of life okay, where I was born. And, and as, a as a child, I used to go back to my grandparents' home every summer. And I used to experience that forest and the woods around my grandparents' homes. And it was always full of life. But then slowly over time, you know, if you go back now, there's hardly any insects left, hardly any wildlife left. It's all been so-called developed, right? But this sanctuary, it was full of life. And uh, did you, did I freeze? Did you freeze? You were, were good, I think. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it was so full of life and I had the sense of perfection. And I, uh, and I asked the owner of the sanctuary who happened to be a couple from New Jersey of all places. And uh, uh, Pamela said, oh, you know, we did nothing to make this happen. We basically bought a coffee plantation, tore down the fences, 
and gave it back to the animals. And the animals did everything. And I said, wow, that's all you have to do to bring the forest back, just return the forest back to the animals, tear down the fences. So think about that, tearing down the fences, right? What does that mean? It's really about freeing the earth, right? So I, so I call healing, heal is human earth animal liberation. That's the acronym that I use for heal. It's, it's about human liberation, earth liberation, and animal liberation. So she did just that. She just tore down the fences and gave it back to the animals, and the forest came back. And it was so full of life that at night, I couldn't even hear my sister talk because there was such a loud din of insects all around us. And at night, you know, when we went to our um, cottage, I had to. I spent about half an hour getting insects out of the cottage <laughs> because my sister wouldn't sleep if there was a bug inside. <laughs> you know? So to me, you know, it was uh, absolute. It reminded me of what life really is. You know, how life really uh, thrives when uh, when left alone. And and I was observing this elephant in the sanctuary, and the elephant was breaking branches of trees, eating the leaves, throwing the branch away, taking another branch, eating the leaves, throwing the branch away. And I was calculating if she keeps doing this for the next week, she can destroy the entire forest. <laughs> <laughs> but after a few minutes, she stopped. Right. So, and But when she was doing that, I asked Pamela, isn't that elephant destroying your forest? Shouldn't you stop that? And she said, no, 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 no. Wherever the elephant broke branches of trees, that's where the sunlight streams and nourishes the underbrush. And you will see that the elephant will stop at some point. You know, so say so everything in nature belongs exactly as it is. And I said, oh, wow, that's beautiful. And But then she said, except human beings. <laughs> you know. We had to patrol the land and make sure that no human being comes inside in order to bring this forest back. So that is the story of separation from nature that we had bought into. And I bought into it too. I thought, okay, we are the only species that doesn't belong in nature. You know, every other species just belongs and, um, and they just live and the planet thrives. We are the only species that we just live and the planet dies. So we are a evolutionary mistake, an evolutionary cul-de-sac, okay? That was the impression I had. And then a year later, my granddaughter was born. And when my granddaughter was born, uh, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, I was living in Danville, California, if you know that place. And Danville, California is actually the hometown of Captain Sullenberger. Okay, so this is the captain who landed the US Airways plane on the Hudson River. He lived just a mile down from my home. And I'll tell you that because you know um, his story is relevant to what we are trying to do about climate change. Okay. And so so Captain Sullenberger was a mile away and I was living there in Danville, and we found out that my granddaughter was born a couple of weeks early. So my wife just took off. Okay. She just changed her tickets and she took off. 
And I didn't see her for the next month, pretty much. She would come and go. And then a month later, she told me, you better go see this girl. There's something special about her. Okay. So I went to see her when she was a month old. And I, in, she was in Phoenix at that time. And I held her in my arms. And she looked up at me and she had this knowing smile. As if she was saying, what do you mean I don't belong? <laughs> I belong exactly as I am. And you haven't understood me. So I realized this is, you know, this may be just like the elephant breaking branches of trees. And I'm thinking that the elephant is destroying the forest. Similarly, we have been doing something that I don't understand yet. And that we're going to stop and we're going to transform, you know, we're going to change. So I decided I wanted to uh, study that from that perspective, that we do belong exactly as we are. And I have to figure out what it is that we were doing and how are we going to heal the climate? Okay. And all along, the answer was staring at me in the face. So this is the thing. Sometimes you get so caught up in your uh, in, in your uh, attitudes and your beliefs that you don't see the truth that's right in front of you. Yeah. So that was um, so. It, it turns out as soon as we admit that we are changing the climate of the planet, we have a responsibility to maintain that climate, to harmonize that climate. And so that is our role. Okay. So you have to tell a story in which you do belong exactly as you are. So you have, to, you have to tell a story to every human being that you are here at this time because you have been uniquely selected by your ancestors to take this project forward. So what did our ancestors do? They hated the climate. They hated the climate. They prevented the earth from going back to another ice age ever again. Okay. And they did that by burning down forests and raising animals uh, um, by the billions. Yeah. And that essentially kept the temperature constant for 10,000 years in the current warm period. And then over the last 200 years, we heated the climate by another two, uh, 1.2 degrees Celsius. And in the process, we have created all the tools and technologies, and we have gathered all the resources we need to become a climate harmonizing species of the planet. So that is the story. Okay, that's the story of belonging. So we have always belonged in nature. It's not like we, you know, we were separated at some point. We pretended to be separated. Okay, We actually go through a lot of trouble to separate ourselves. Because I ask people when I uh, when I start my presentations to a group of non non vegans, I always ask them, "How many of you are vegan?" And very few raise their hands, obviously. And then I ask them, "How many of you would deliberately hurt an innocent animal unnecessarily?" Invariably, no one raises their hands. And I tell them, by definition, you're vegan. So that's the definition of veganism. You wouldn't deliberately hurt an innocent animal unnecessarily. So in our hearts, we are always vegan. We, are, we were born vegan, okay? And we remain vegan. 
And then we get conditioned out of it by our culture, by our education system, by our systems that we have created. And why did we create that culture, this, those systems? Because we were heating the climate. And that was our temporary job. So the elephant was doing it for 10 minutes. We have been doing it for 10,000 years. That's it, right? That's the only difference. <laughs> then the elephant stopped. Now we have to stop and we have to nourish the underbrush. We have to nourish the planet. So we have to transform to a climate healing civilization. And that transformation is a systems transformation. And this is what I'm uniquely qualified to tell you how to do. Right? Because this is systems engineering. You know, how do you do systems engineering to go from where you are to where you need to be? And that requires looking at every angle of this system transformation. It, look, it requires looking at every aspect of our systems, uh, whether it is a political system, economic system, you know, education system. Uh, all of them have to change. All of them have to transform from a climate heating system to a climate healing system. And you look at, okay, what is a climate heating system? It is actually based on uh, being something that you are not. Being something that you are not. Because you are fundamentally compassionate at your core. So you have to separate yourself and be cruel. Eh? Right? So that's what separation does. And so that is, it's an artificial separation that we do okay, from nature. And so we've created systems around it. So I really say that we have been, we are factory farming ourselves not just the animals. They're factory farming ourselves through our education system in, not, in to go along with this climate heating civilization, the climate heating system. So how do you unfactory farm yourself? And for me, the easiest way to do it was to let my granddaughter be my boss. <laughs> That's what happened to me. That's how it happened to me. So uh, when I felt that sense of uh, that she was saying that we belong exactly as we are, I immediately you know, decided that I was going to treat this girl as absolutely special, that she is the most amazing thing that ever happened to me because she changed my head. She turned my life around. She turned my head around, right, instantly. So I said, okay, I'm going to treat her as if she's the most amazing thing that ever happened to me from now on. And I'm going to do exactly whatever she wants. I'm going to let her be my boss. So if she wants me to dance, I will dance. If she wants me to jump, I'll jump. Okay? So within a year, we moved to Phoenix to be with her, to be close to her. And, uh, and that's how I dealt with her. And then she taught me. I say that everything that I do at Climate Healers, it rests on the shoulders of others. And especially my granddaughter's shoulders. Because um, the three major, you know, the three Cinderella principles came from her. The idea of infinite games came from her. So I've written an entire book now about, about my relationships with her and how that uh, impacted my work at Climate Healers. So I call that book The Pinky Promise, and it's going to come out um, very soon. 
So we have finished with the editing and so on. And I'm trying to now get a lot of quotes from people so I can put it on Amazon, you know. So uh, that is the transformation from climate heating to climate healing is, to me, it's inevitable. And I treat it as if I am part of something much, much larger that's undergoing the transformation. And I'm just going along, you know, for the ride. And I'm going to do my best to help the process with whatever skills I have. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what skills do I have? Well, I'm a systems engineer. And I can look at this as a systems problem. And when I look at it as a systems problem, I realize that I can, you know, in, in systems engineering, you create a model for the problem and you create a model for the solution space for the problem. And within that solution space, you identify what is the, uh, what is the optimum solution and then you execute on it. And as you execute on it, you modify the model depending on how nature is reacting to your execution. This is how you do systems engineering, right? And so the model is what I call the climate bathtub model. In the climate bathtub model, we have basically two machines that are causing climate change. One is the burning machine of fossil fuels in industry. And the second is the killing machine of animal agriculture. Now the machines are actually pouring greenhouse gases into the atmosphere but they also have an opportunity cost and an opportunity benefit. Okay, so you have to take the opportunity cost and benefit into account when you come up with solutions. If we don't, you'll be doing something that would kill us, that could kill us, right? Literally. So I say that if, if uh, um, Mr. Gore's wildest dreams come true and the entire energy infrastructure gets transformed to clean energy overnight, within one year, we'll be dead. <laughs> right? Why? Because within one year, the temperature would have reached 1.5 degrees Celsius, probably even closer to 2 degrees Celsius. Because when we burn fossil fuels, not only do you emit greenhouse gases that heat the atmosphere, we also emit aerosols that cool the atmosphere. And the aerosols are, are in the atmosphere for a very short period of time. And they're very powerful, sulfur dioxide and the clouds that they form. They actually cool the earth by about one third of the heating that we do. So if we stop burning fossil fuels instantly, then the aerosols will disappear and the earth will heat by another one, um, one degree Fahrenheit for sure within a year. Likely to be more than that, okay? So that's about half a degree Celsius. So there you go, you'll be at 1.5 degrees Celsius within a year. And why would you do that? So that's because we didn't take into account the opportunity benefit of fossil fuels. So if we just implemented a solution not taking into account the opportunity benefit, we are going to be dead. We know that now, right? Similarly, 
for animal agriculture, there is an opportunity cost. So I say that every day that we're eating animal foods, we're actually saying, I don't want the forest to come back on that land. But if we stopped eating animal foods, one third or more, but 40% of the land area of the planet can be returned back to nature. The entire ocean can be returned back to nature. So that's 80% of the Earth's surface can be returned back to nature. And nature will start sequestering CO2 in the ground in the form of trees. Because if you look at a tree, half the weight of a tree is carbon that used to be in the atmosphere in the form of CO2. So that's how trees grow. They breathe in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, store all the carbon in their bodies, and leave out oxygen to us. Right? So the as trees grow, they're actually putting the greenhouse gases in the from the atmosphere and bringing it to the ground and keeping it there. So every day that we eat animal foods, we are saying we don't want that to happen. And you ask, so how much CO2 can be sequestered if you return that land back to nature? Just the land alone can sequester about 35 billion tons of CO2 per year. That's a lower bound. That's an engineering lower bound. What, is, what do I mean by an engineering lower bound? It means that I know it is already happening. <laughs> it's already happening. And the animal, and I base that on the fact that the animals are eating biomass that has at least 11 and a half billion tons of CO2 sequestered in it. Okay. They're only eating above ground vegetation. So whatever you sequester above ground, twice as much will get sequestered below ground. So that's where the 11 and a half becomes 34.5 billion tons. That's an engineering lower bound. This is why in my paper, I'm giving you engineering lower bounds on how much CO2 can be sequestered if the world goes vegan. Okay? It's at least 87% of the greenhouse gas emissions that we put into the atmosphere today will not be put into the atmosphere if we all go vegan. Okay, So at least 87%. It could be more than 100%. What does it mean if it's more than 100%? It means that even though we are still driving cars, okay, you're still using fossil fuels, if the world goes vegan, you will start seeing the CO2 level in the atmosphere come down. That's what it means by more than 100%. Okay, Why is it coming down? Because the forests are sucking it down. The forests that are growing on the 40% of the land that we release back to nature are sucking it down. Okay. In addition, the ocean will start sucking down the CO2 as well because you're not fishing in the ocean. You're not fishing in the ocean, which means you're not bottom trawling 4 billion acres of the ocean floor every year. And when you stop doing that, the ocean also starts healing. And that will sequester CO2 as well. So even though we have been doing all this damage on land and in the ocean, nature is still already sequestering more than half of our CO2 emissions from fossil fuels. Okay? Nature is already trying to heal. And I'm saying if you just start helping nature as opposed to hurting her, it'll be at least 87%, if not more. Okay? So this is why I stand behind that figure, that paper that I wrote, that got published. And, and I'm appealing to 
the vegan community to please use it. That's important data at your disposal. Okay, please use it. It's just like you know, just like the protein myth and the calcium myth. The community, I mean, the um, mainstream science, the mainstream political system, I would call it the political system actually, has been massaging the data to make it look like it's not animal agriculture, the major part of the problem. Just like they massage it to, to tell people to consume meat you know, for their protein or to consume milk for their calcium. <clears throat> so we know that that was a lie that was peddled to us as children, right? In the same way, they are trying to mask the impact of animal agriculture on climate change. But as an engineer, I mean, I don't put up with any of that. You know, I just look at the numbers and I see where, where do the numbers lead me? Where do the facts lead me? And they lead me to a system transformation that begins by going vegan as quickly as possible. So go to a plant-based economy as quickly as possible and to a clean energy economy on a more nuanced basis. You have to do it slower. Because as you do it slower, uh, you can sequester the the, uh, the aerosols. You can reduce it slowly over time, so that you don't lose the cooling instantly. You have to lose it gradually. Okay. And when you do that, uh, we can actually reverse climate change. Uh, we can reverse the fever that the Earth has, and heal the climate. So that's, you know, to me, it's in a nutshell, how can we heal the climate of the planet? Um, of course, it requires a system transformation. And I say the entire system will change. So you have to have a different education system, a different political system, different economic system, a different currency system. And the currency system is one of the main things that we need to change because as human beings, we tell stories and we play games. And through those two mechanisms, we coordinate our actions among millions and billions of us. That's what makes us the most powerful species on the planet because we have common stories and we play common games. So the common stories are, you know, in the form of, you know, languages in, you know, common stories of nations and things like that. These are all artificial boundaries that we put, right? A currency, you know, and the game of money is the most important game we play today. And that's a hunting game. The game of money is a hunting game. And in that game, in the current uh, climate heating system, you don't belong in the game by default. By default, you get zero. Okay, You don't start with anything. You start with zero, unless your parents left you something. <laughs> right? If your parents didn't leave you anything, you start with zero. And then you have to go and hunt for money. How do you hunt for money? You have to do what someone with money wants you to do. So, which means by default, you don't belong unless you do what the master wants. This is why it's a colonial system. It fundamentally colonizes us, right? <clears throat> so in such a game, you know, um, you, you start out by not belonging, so which is exactly what we do in nature as well. We pretend like we don't belong in nature. We separate ourselves, right? And then that allows us to heat the climate. So heating the climate is simple. You have to dump 
things, you have to burn things, you have to kill things. That heats the climate. But how do you heal the climate? Well, you have to clean things. You have to plant trees. And you have to heal ourselves. So the most important thing we need to do is to heal ourselves first. So to me, you know, this is why I support what you are doing and we did, we did it for health. I support all the plant-based doctors. I work with them closely because I see you as part of the system transformation that needs to happen. Okay, And the most important step in the system transformation is to heal ourselves first. This is the oxygen mask rule, right? You put on your own oxygen mask before you help others. Okay, So if human beings are not healthy, we're not going to make the earth healthy. We're not going to make the animals healthy. We're not going to make the climate healthy. Okay, So to start with, you have to make the human beings healthy. And I say, how do you make human beings healthy? And this is where I come to uh, Captain Sullenberger and his example. Because think about what happened to Captain Sullenberger. You know, he was the pilot, the chief pilot on a US Airways plane that was taking off from LaGuardia. And 100 seconds into the takeoff, the plane got hit by a flock of geese. And the engines got completely disabled. So both his engines died okay, on the spot. So he had now a plane with 155 people. And he had to figure out how to land it and save the people. And he said, you know, in his mind, you know, he had never done this. He had never tried to land a plane that had no engines. That's a huge plane like that, right? And uh, he also calculated that he couldn't go back to LaGuardia. He couldn't go back to go to Teterboro Airport. He had to land in the Hudson River. And he has never landed a plane on a river in the, ever in his training. But then he used all of his knowledge. And he said, I want to focus on this job of landing the plane and saving the people on board. Okay. So he told the people to put on your oxygen mask and brace for impact. And it, it was only about 30 seconds or so that he had to land the plane. And we know that he, you know, he did it successfully and everyone thrived. Everyone got out alive. And uh, um, it was a positive story. We are facing exactly the same situation in climate change. Okay, So I say that uh, a year in Mother Earth's life is like a second in our life. Because the Mother Earth has been around for 3.5 billion years. Okay. So one second in our life is like a year in her life. So if you look back over the last 100 years, what have we done? We, we have taken off. <laughs> we took off. <laughs> and then it's not a flock of geese, but you know, all of nature collided with us. And, and she has not disabled our engines, as far as I'm concerned. If you think you're going to keep going, you're in deep denial. Okay, so no, we have been we have been disabled. Okay, by climate change, biodiversity loss, and all the environmental problems that we face today. And now we have to land the plane. We actually had about thirty years to land the plane since we discovered this problem to land our civilization. And I say we do have another four years or so, four or five years 
to land the civilization to a safe landing. Yeah? And I say that the most important thing you need to do is to tell people to brace for impact. And how do you brace for impact? How do you give them an oxygen mask? You give them free, healthy food. That's the idea behind food healers. Okay. You have to make sure that they have healthy food for free. And now there is no debate about what healthy food is. Because even the medical professionals come around, you know, in uh, the latest uh, American Journal of Cardiology, they, they talk about the moral imperative of advocating plant-based nutrition, whole food plant-based nutrition. They have a moral imperative to do that because now the data is very clear. That's the healthiest diet for human beings, right? And so, which means rather than saying, hey guys, you figure it out. No, we need to get together and make sure that they have access to healthy food for free. So that's the Food Healers Initiative. And I'm asking you know, could the community to come together and cook together healthy food and give it away for free to people. And everyone comes along and brings their gift to make this happen. Okay? If you can come and cook, come and cook. If you can come and chop vegetables, come and chop vegetables. If you can uh, bring pots and pans, bring pots and pans. You know, If you can bring some uh, grains and beans because you have the money to buy them, fine, go do that. So this way, make sure that healthy food is available to the community for free. And I say that's the job of uh, every community today. That should be the job of every community today if we want to brace for impact right, and heal the climate. Yeah. So that's job one. And, I, and when we do that, when we accomplish that, we will heal ourselves. And then we will see that the game we have been playing, the game of money, the economic game, is actually the reason why we are been destroying the planet. And so we need to change that game, right? So I say that the economic system today, we monetize everything so that when uh, dead animals have more economic value than living animals, we kill the animals. When dead trees have more economic value than living trees, we chop down the trees. And when sick people have more economic value than healthy people, we sicken people. So that's the economic system we have. And through that, we have been endangering all life on Earth. And, and we have been addicting everyone into compulsive behaviors. We lie to ourselves about um, the protein myth, the calcium myth. You know, I mean, this is a systematic lying that we do to ourselves. And we steal from the powerless to enrich the powerful. It's a domination game. So who is powerless? The animals are powerless. So we steal from them to enrich ourselves. You know, who is powerless? The poor are powerless. So we steal from them to enrich the rich. Okay. So that's the economic system. And this economic system is obviously heating up the planet. Right? And it's, it has no choice but to heat up the planet. It's designed to heat up the planet. So the question is now, how do you create a healing economic system? Well, it has to be about regenerative. So it's not an extractive economy, but a regenerative economy in which we are planting new trees. we That's our job. We make sure that everyone has access to healthy food. Suddenly, you know, climate healing is an engineering project, really. 
it has to be treated as if it's an engineering project because we have a common goal of making sure that the, the climate doesn't go haywire, right? So to prevent any positive tipping points in the climate system, we have to keep the temperature below 1.5 degrees Celsius. We have to keep the water level, you know. And so there are lots of uh, boundaries that we need to stay within, planetary boundaries that we need to stay within. And all of those become an engineering um, become an engineering imperative, right? Staying within those bounds. And so we need to play games to allow that to happen. And so that's the game of Aquarius that we have been defining. So anyway, I've been talking for too long. <laughs> I'm going to just stop now and uh, uh, ask you if you have any questions. Okay, get my my microphone back on. There's no such thing as you talking too long. We we all love listening to your wisdom, and you you shared so much. Um, do have a couple questions that people have been asking. There was one question about um, whether the relevant whether other plants or just trees are what's important in in uh, oh, yeah. for climate healing. And if you can talk a little bit about that, I know, and I've heard people talk about how even uh, the plankton in the oceans is very relevant. So if you could just address. Um, how all the major players in, in nature uh, help help extract the carbon from our air carbon dioxide. Absolutely. It turns out that the native ecosystem in any given region maximizes the carbon sequestration in that region, for that climate in that region. So knowing that we are returning back to the climate that used to be there uh, 200 years ago, so, because that should be our goal, you know, returning back to the climate that used to be there. Then we need to be planting the native ecosystems in that region in order to maximize the carbon sequestration in that region. So that means not just trees, but also the shrubs that go with it, you know, all the native plants that used to be there. But we can selectively make, you know, more food trees. So make them all edible so that we don't ever run out of food. You know, to me, we have now... Uh, extracted an abundance of food from the planet. So we know we are extracting six times as much food as we need from the planet. And we are feeding five of that to our to our animals. Okay, That's why we, we still have a shortage, food shortage. And this is why a billion people are going hungry. Right? So, but even though we are extracting six times as much food as we need from the planet, in the same way, we have plenty of shelter. We have way more shelter than we need. Okay, that we have built, and yet millions and billions of people are, are homeless, are houseless. Why is that? Because we have created an economic system in which there is this polarity. The people are hungry, and simultaneously there are people who are eating really, really bad food, rich food that makes them sick. Nobody is happy. Everybody is getting inadequate nutrition. Okay. The same way. People are homeless or houseless, and other people have four or five houses and they're lonely. So there is a pandemic of loneliness in rich countries because the, the house sizes have been going up and the family sizes have been going down. Okay, so essentially there's a pandemic of loneliness in rich countries 
simultaneously there is a pandemic of homelessness a houselessness in rich countries because that's a system we have created you know the polarization is between these two extremes where no one is happy at either extreme and similarly for clothing so i look at food shelter clothing these are the three main necessities for human beings right and for clothing also you know if you look at that there are these extremes people in rags who hardly have enough clothes to wear and people who wear one their uh, their clothes once and then they never wear it again <laughs> so tremendous excess on the other side like you know closets full of shoes things like that so we create these extremes and people on both sides are unhappy and this is why i say that uh, we need to be creating uh, i mean we have plenty of resources so that's the beauty right so our ancestors have given us all the tools and technologies and the resources we need to actually reach nirvana you know to make everyone happy but our optimization functions have to be different uh, we our goals have to be different so we have to create a system with different optimization functions yeah thank you for that um so i uh, one of one of the things that i'll never forget that i got from cowspiracy is how none of the environmental groups wanted mm -hmm. to engage in this conversation have you been able to make progress on that and and what is it is there anything that we as ambassadors can be doing to approach the environmental groups and and support their coming around to to seeing the truth of what's really going on yeah they see the money system basically forces silence on this issue because you know people are looking for funding and the funders are saying if you talk about this i won't give it to you <laughs> it happens and i'm telling you i mean i've i've experienced it firsthand you know i um a cajoled a i cajoled a uh, academic to help me out with my research on how much carbon can be sequestered if you return grazing lands back to the forest that used to be there on that land okay i persuaded him to help me do the calculations and he agreed and we did the calculations we made presented a paper at the american geophysical union fall meeting in 2015 which shocked people because we showed that actually if we just return the original forest that used to be there you can reverse climate change pretty much you can sequester more co2 than we have added to the atmosphere since 1750 and that poor gentleman who helped me out lost his funding okay that's terrible that's the corruption in the system that, that is really terrible it's it's a you know the animal agriculture industry is extremely powerful and so they're putting in you know i mean they're gagging people <laughs> they're doing everything they can to maintain their hold they are feeding children you know um dairy in schools even though people of color cannot even digest it it's outright racism okay and yet they're forcing children to consume that stuff it's just to me not only is it unjust it is absolutely it's a travesty okay mm -hmm. no one should tolerate this nonsense that's going on absolutely 
Yeah. Well, and and with that, maybe that's a little bit of a segue to talk about Mayor Adams in New York. He he mm -hmm. seems to be out there willing to willing to break out of of the standard norms and processes of of economics and politics. Can you talk a little bit about all he's doing? And I know that you've honored him recently, and he's uh, he's signing the proclamation. So please talk about that a little bit. Yeah, he's he does something. He calls it leaning into what is right. Mm. He's leaning into what is right. Um, he knows. I mean, he obviously he changed his diet and he uh, he reversed his diabetes, and I think he also healed his mother with uh, with proper whole food plant based nutrition. And so he wants that for all the people of New York. You know, naturally, because he's a kind man, he's a compassionate man. He wants to make that happen to all the people of New York. And he tried to do that in schools right away when he became mayor. And um, I spoke to his office and they told me that, you know, that united both Republicans and Democrats <laughs> against him. Because they said, because all the parents got together and said, "What? My my children are not getting any protein." You know, so, so this this nonsense, this lies that we have been taught, have consequences. Yeah, this is why lying in science textbooks should be a crime against humanity. Knowingly lying in science textbooks should be a crime against humanity. And those who issue those textbooks ought to be hauled up before an international court of law and, and demand, I mean, make them, make them change it, okay, immediately, immediately. It's not yeah. that, oh, you know, this is the way it's been and so we have to continue lying, out, lying to our children. No, excuse me. And let's have a conversation about that right away, okay? Let's have a conversation about that right away so that people, the parents don't push back when Mayor Adams is trying to do the right thing. Absolutely. So they were, so I asked, you know, I asked them, so how can I help you? Uh, and they said, make more vegans, please. <laughs> because people don't understand, right? So, uh, and uh, he actually has, uh, so he's made it an option. So option, you can have an option of whole food plant-based meals in hospitals. Instead of saying, you know, that's the default meal that you should be getting. Because so many Americans have been lied to. So many people have been lied to, and they think that if they don't eat meat and dairy, they're going to die. And I, I love that. that. And that's really part of our mission. So right. being, that, being that it's so difficult to, to work at the higher levels, work against the politics, work against the big-time funding, you know, we, we're bringing the grassroots level. So it's our mission, our work, and thank you so much for, for being part of it. It's our mission, what, what we're coming at is at the grassroots level. So we can have these conversations one-on-one -on -one and and reach people from this level because there's there's so many people trying to do it at high levels and so many amazing efforts and, and beautiful work. 
But what we're bringing to the table then is let's have these conversations one-on-one. -on -one. Let's let's find the ways to plant the seeds. Let's let's break through those myths. Let's break through those lies. Let's let's do it one-on-one -on -one also. And so appreciate all you're doing. And if you if you can and and we'll ask you to share some of this later and we'll make it available in our community is is what are the seeds that we can be planting? What what are the things and, and you've certainly touched on some of it so i uh, would love to to be able for all of us to be be better armed better ready so that when i'm having a conversation with a friend and i i've noticed that maybe they are looking at the possibility that there is a, a climate crisis that then i can give them the right information so right. so we we all as ambassadors as grassroots ambassadors we we want to look at at people like yourself, at the experts in all the various niches of of being vegan and plant-based. And, and for you, you're the leader and expert in, in the climate healing part. So I uh, look forward to, to being able to share a lot more information so that we're ready. Our vision is that all of us who are a vegan and plant-based enthusiasts, we're always ready to plant the seeds. We always have the best information that that most people just don't know about. And, and here we are talking to people who've heard at least much of what you're sharing and, and are aware and have seen some of this work and, and are big fans of this work. But how do we arm ourselves? How do we prepare ourselves so that when we're having the conversations outside of the community, then what what is the best way? And, and maybe you could share some of those tips. What what would be the the top three or five things that I should be ready when I run into an old friend and and somehow I start sensing that they're concerned about about the climate? What what are what are the facts? What are the things that that I can share with them? Yeah, absolutely. I would say please share the eighty seven percent figure, the paper. And uh, and because I stand by it, and you can be absolutely sure that it's a lower bound. Okay, that's how much greenhouse gases will be reduced if the world goes vegan. That's a very powerful statement to make. Okay, we have created a a, a cow in the room campaign, and we have a short one minute animation that you can show, which is very easy to understand. And so this cow explains the 87% figure. And she also has another one minute video talking about the food healers campaign, why it is so important. Because engaging people, to engage people, please give them healthy food for free. Okay, that is a, that's a gift you're giving. And that opens them up to hear your message. Okay, so, I say that uh, this is why I, I consider food healers to be the equivalent of the oxygen mask on the plane. Okay, You're saying oxygen mask on the plane and I'm saying brace for impact. Within four years, we're gonna have an impact, okay? So meaning we are going to either pull it out and land safely, or we are going to have a big mess on our hands, depending on how fast we go vegan. Because that is the most important thing right now is how fast can we get the world to go vegan? Uh, it's not the fossil fuel first. It's animal agriculture first. You have to shut down that animal agriculture industry as quickly as possible. Okay, and this is why uh, Mayor Adams's proclamation to me is so important. 
because it's based entirely on science. If you look at the, the clauses that he put in the proclamation, it was based on existing papers, existing reports, and shows it logically shows why everyone should be eating whole food plant-based. Okay, for all the reasons, you know, for environmental reasons, for health reasons, for the sake of the animals, and for the sake of the planet, yeah. And so, and I say that, you know, I am actually, there is a clause in there, which, uh, which is about New York City. It says, whereas New York City has led the way in making healthy whole food plant-based universal vegan meals easily available to every patient in the hospital within the city. Um, instead of that, I can put something that's more generic, you know, because the American Journal of Cardiology basically said it's, uh, it's, um, it's a moral imperative for the medical profession to promote plant-based nutrition. Okay, so I could put that clause in there. So make that a very generic proclamation that you can go to any city and get your mayor to sign. You can go to any state and get your governor to sign that because it's based entirely on science. And they can go verify these numbers. They verify what we are saying. So if they don't sign the proclamation, they're basically condemning their people to die. You know, who would do that? No one would do that. So obviously they will sign it. Okay, so. Yes. Yes, it's the moral imperative. It's, it's a moral imperative right now. It's yeah. a moral imperative. Absolutely. I'm here to serve the next generation. I'm here to serve my granddaughter. Okay. She's my boss. She has asked me for something very, very simple. She said, within four years, please make people stop eating my relatives. My relatives. Absolutely. Yes. And, uh, and I will... I'm willing to give my life for that cause. Yes, and and you're you're doing a wonderful job. You're giving so much energy, so much attention, so much wonderful focus to us. So thank you so very much for all that that you're doing. And um, uh, with that, uh, I think we're at the top of the hour, and I think we're going to need to end this this broadcast. And and we'd love to to do more and look forward to it. And I really hope that we can put together uh, a, a document with with the things that we we should all be ready to share with people who aren't vegans to to show them the facts to show them the resources to to help them because like you said I I'm sure nobody nobody wants to kill the earth nobody wants right. to have animals suffer I'm I'm sure authentically as human beings in our hearts that's that's not who we are we we're all about thriving and loving and sharing and and we need to return to that so we need to return the earth to its natural authentic being and and our hearts and ourselves to to that also right so well, thank with you. that thank you and and i love sharing this uh with everybody i talk to and it it comes out of your organization which is Namaste, vegan. <laughs> so thank you. And, and everybody, thank you so very much for joining us. And please share it. This recording is available on our YouTube channel. We did it that health. Uh, please subscribe. Please share it. Please join us in the conversation. Uh, 
let's let's do this together we're all in this together and as as grassroots ambassadors grassroots enthusiasts i think we're we can all make a big difference in spreading the word and making this a much much better world for everybody so thank you everybody bye bye